Let's read together from Mark's Gospel, chapter 15, verses 33 to 39. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a spark wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. We get too used to the gospel story, to the crucifixion story, particularly as Christian people. We've heard it so many times and we sort of run over it in our minds and just say, yeah, I know what happened. And if you imagine if you were to ask even people in the street what happened at that time, many of them would be able to give you a, a basic understanding or a simple description of it and have never really looked into it in detail. But we need to look at it in detail because it's a strange story, particularly the way Mark tells it. It's a strange story indeed. If we're reading it for a first time, we might expect that after the crowds have mocked him and have called him names, that he'd, all that's left for him to do is breathe his last breath and die. We might thought that it might take some time because crucified people took a long time to die. It's not a quick death on a cross. They often hover between life and death for days and it's only John tells us in his gospel that it's because the Sabbath is drawing near that the other criminals are killed, that they come and break their legs so they can no longer heave themselves up to breathe. But Jesus has been dead long before the other criminals have their, before the criminals have their legs broken. But nothing really, there's some very bizarre things in Mark's version. Mark relates in this short account of Jesus' last minute, and every step is more curious than the last. There's the supernatural darkness. There's the sudden Jesus shouting out and must have upset or at least terrified or confused the people um, listening to him, thinking he was calling for Elijah. What was that about? And then Jesus' death, much sooner than people would have expected. And then the temple veil is just added in there. And the temple veil was torn in two from top to bottom. And finally, the extraordinary remark of the centurion. The narrative bumps along. What is it that Mark's trying to tell us? Let's start at the end, because what the centurion tells us links us to what we've been learning throughout the entire reading of the Gospel of Mark. Surely this man was the Son of God. At the beginning of the Gospel, the first line of the Gospel talks about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And the voice at Jesus' baptism hails Jesus as God's beloved Son. And then the transfiguration the voice says the same to Peter, James and John. This is my son whom I love. In the parable of the tenants, the wicked tenants, which we registered last Sunday, spoke of the beloved son sent to bring the message. Caiaphas asked Jesus if he was the Messiah, God's son. And the crowds earlier in Mark chapter 15 mock him in the same way, saying, you are the son of God, come down from the cross. And now at last, it's not the high priest, it's not a leading rabbi, it's not even a loyal disciple, but it's a battle-hardened thug in Roman uniform, used to killing humans the ways one might kill a fly. He stands before this dying man and he says something which 
sends a signal to the whole world that this kingdom has indeed come, that a new age is being born, that God has done something. The Roman centurion becomes the first sane human in Mark's gospel to call Jesus God's son and mean it. Let's go back to the beginning of the passage and talk about some of the various things. First of all, darkness comes over the whole land until three in the afternoon. This darkness uh, was something that indicates something supernatural is happening, something out of the ordinary, something extraordinary is happening here. A darkness that lasts for three hours. It can't have been an eclipse or any natural phenomenon because the Passover happens uh, when there's a full moon. Even today, as we measure our Easter, is determined by a certain number of days since the last full moon since, and so on. The Jews had a similar thing for determining Passover. Passover happened at full moon, or just after the full moon. For a full moon to be there, the, earth, the moon has to be on this side of the earth, and the sun on the other, and that's how it works. For an eclipse, the moon has to pass between the earth and the sun. Most eclipses don't last for three hours. So something supernatural is going on here, something strange. Something else to talk about is Jesus crying out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The people there listening to him say this get confused and think, oh, maybe he's calling for Elijah to come and rescue him. And the story of the wine and different things, the sponge, let's see if Elijah comes and gets him down. But Jesus is calling out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some people take this uh, in various different ways, and we'll talk about those for a moment. But first of all, this picture of separation, the idea of separation. That something has happened here to separate God, separate God the Father from God the Son. Something has happened here to, to, so that for the first time, Jesus feels distant from his Father. And there's different ways of talking about this and the idea of uh, separation or the idea of substitute, the person coming and taking our place. So I want you to imagine, uh, let's talk about separation first, that this book, this hymn book, contains all the sins that I've ever committed, all the things I've ever done wrong. Uh, and so these things stand between me and God. Well, imagine God is the ceiling. So all the sins that I've ever committed stand between me and God. God can't talk to me and I can't talk to God and there's something separating us. This hand represents Jesus. The picture is that Jesus in his life never did anything wrong, never did anything that stood between him and God. So there was always perfect communication between God the Father and God the Son while Jesus was here on earth. The picture is that on the sin, on, on the cross, uh, the scriptures tell us, Paul tells us, that God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. So all of my sins and all of your sins and all the sins of all the people who've ever lived and ever will live were laid upon Jesus so that there's no longer anything now between me and God. But for the first time ever, there was something between God the Son and God the Father. And this idea of Jesus being our substitute, the one who takes the sin of our sins upon himself, who takes our punishment, the punishment that was rightly deserved to us, and is laid upon Jesus. And so in this anguish, in this pain, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? And people take this verse and have turned it into a whole theology. Uh, and we sing the song sometimes, uh, one of the newer songs saying, um, how, how deep the pain of searing loss. Um, the words escape me immediately. 
Uh, but the the line that is that the father turns his face away. The line, the father turns his face away. Why do people say this? Because we have this evangelical idea or this idea in Christianity that once Jesus became sin for us, that God, sort of God the Father in heaven, looked away. Oh, I cannot bear to look on my son who is covered in sin. And that Jesus felt this. Why have you forsaken me? He cries out. And so we've drawn, evangelicals have drawn a long bow on this, saying, oh, the, something terribly wrong, something has gone terribly wrong in the Godhead, or the pain of all this. And I, I, please, I do not dismiss that. But when people say, well, why do we say this? Why do we think this? I'll point you immediately to the book of Habakkuk. If you've got your Bibles there, turn to the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk probably gets two or three mentions uh, in theology, and this is probably the main one, his great contribution. Uh, Habakkuk chapter 1 and verses 12. No, verses 12 and 13. Let's read from 12 and 13. Habakkuk's, we'll read it and then we'll come back to it. Habakkuk 13 says, Habakkuk 1 verse 13 says, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Well, there it is. It seems quite simple, doesn't it? Jesus becomes sin for us, and because God is too pure to look on evil, he has to look away. And so we have this picture of God the Father looking away. The problem is that that's only half of Habakkuk 1.13. The rest of Habakkuk 1.13 implies something completely different. And when we take little bits of scripture out of context, we end up with very strange ideas. And this is one of those. The book of Habakkuk is God, Habakkuk, this guy complaining to God, asking questions of God, saying, God, why is this? Why are you doing that? And then writing down God's answer. So Habakkuk, the prophet, complains to God. In fact, in my Bible, it says Habakkuk's complaint. Chapter one, Habakkuk's complaint. And then it says the Lord's answer. And this here at verse 12, it says Habakkuk's second complaint. So Habakkuk is complaining to God in verse 12. He says, oh, Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, we will not die. O oh Lord, you have appointed them to execute judgment. O oh Lord, you have ordained them to punish. He goes on to say, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then, he says, why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why then are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous themselves than themselves? Habakkuk, in verse 13, says, God, you're too pure to look on evil. You're too good to tolerate wrong. And then he goes on and says, then why do you do it? He gets really annoyed at God. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Habakkuk says in one and the same time, he says, God, you're too holy to look at evil, and yet you do. And for some reason, evangelicals and Christians in general have listened to the first part of Habakkuk's complaint and not the second part of his complaint. We agree, oh yes, God is too pure to look on evil. But when Habakkuk says, and yet you do, and it really annoys me, that bit. Something to think about. The Lord's answer, and he goes on and sort of says, is basically, look, I'm dealing with it. I'm dealing with it. Yes, there are evil people in the world. My judgment is coming. I will deal with it. I'm not going to put up with this forever. But for some reason, we've taken Habakkuk 1.13 and only read half the verse and built this whole theology of the father turning his back on his son on the cross. And I don't think it's there. I don't think it's there at all. I don't think the father ever looks away from his son. This picture that God is too holy to deal with sin. No, God deals with sin. He does. He gets involved. 
So the question then becomes, why does Jesus cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is it just that he's feeling the weight of the sin of the world upon him and he's and he's faith or maybe he's really annoyed or he's crying this thing out? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, again, we need to turn to the scriptures. Jesus, a couple of things here. Jesus is hanging on the cross. He's, he's, he's strung up in such a way that he has to heave himself up to take a breath because you can't breathe when you're hanging from your arms. It's a terrible, painful way. So to get a breath, he has to push himself up. And remember, his feet have been nailed to the thing below him. So he's in incredible pain no matter what he does. He heaves himself up to take a breath. <gasps> and he has enough breath to cry out something for our benefit and for the benefit of the people around him, not for his own benefit. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's all the breath he has to cry out at this particular stage. And we say, well, why did he cry that out? Psalm 22. Psalm 22. Substitute, separation, psalm. If you've got your Bibles again, turn to Psalm 22. The first line of Psalm 22 is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the first line of a song. If I were to say to you, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, you would all, mostly, know what comes next. And many of you would start singing that song as well and going along with it. Or if I were to say, Australians all, let us rejoice, for we are young and free, we'd all know what comes next. And these days, Psalm 22 isn't called Psalm 22. It's called, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the first line of the psalm is the title of the psalm. So when Jesus has got all the breath that he's got to cry out on the cross, he's calling out the first line of a psalm. Is it a psalm of despair? Yes, in part. Is it a psalm of prophecy? Yes, in part. But let's read it and see what it says. Just, you might like to close your eyes and listen as I read, or you might like to follow along in your own Bible. And I encourage you to listen and look at Psalm 22 in your own time. This is what Jesus is pointing to with his breath on the cross. He points us to this Psalm. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night and am not silenced. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you our fathers put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried out to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. There's optimism there. There's joy there. There's faith. Even though things are going wrong and terrible and stink right now, God, I trust you. He goes on. He goes back to despair. But I am, not, I am a worm and not a man scorned by men and despised by the people all who see me mock me they hurl insults shaking their heads he trusts in the lord let the lord rescue him let him deliver him since he delights in him you've read mark 15 you've heard the people saying exactly that yeah if the lord loves you so much why doesn't he rescue you come down from the cross Keep going in psalm 22 yet you brought me out of the womb you made me trust in you even at my mother's breast from birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. 
Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions tearing their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, it has melted away within me. My strength has dried up like a pot's herd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honour him, revere him. All you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden, he, oh, ah, ah, verse 24. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. Oh, Father God, help us to read your word. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. Verse 25, from you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will I fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. They who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. For he has done it. There's so much in this psalm. Yes, it starts out with this despairing voice, this despairing word. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the psalm of David from a thousand years before Jesus that David wrote this down. A time of despair and horror and upset in his life that mirrors wonderfully what Jesus is going through on the cross. So as Jesus is on the cross, he goes, this reminds me of the Bible. <laughs> this reminds me of Psalm 22. And he says with his breath, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And verse 20, but it's not, doesn't end there. He hasn't got the breath to sing the whole song. He's got the breath to sing or say the first line, but he points us to the rest of it. Verse 24 again, he has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. This is not a cry of despair, a cry of fear, a cry of loss of faith. This is a testimony of absolute faith, of absolute certainty, of trusting in the Lord God, trusting in his father. Even as he's on the cross dying and bearing all the sin and shame of all the earth, of everyone who has ever lived and ever will live, Jesus says, I will trust in my Father. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before the Lord. This is a psalm of optimism and faith and hope and joy. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet undone, unborn. For he has done it. 
But he has done it. He has done it. It's done. It is finished. In the other gospel readings, in some of the other gospel readings, the last words of Jesus on the cross are, it is finished. Mark doesn't tell us that. He just says with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The other gospels tell us that his last words are, it is finished. Is it possible? And this is very me speculating here, so don't take this as being absolutely true. But is it possible that Jesus is crying out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He doesn't have the breath to sing the rest of the song, but as you or I might sing a song in our mind, go through it, recite the words to ourselves. He's there and he's breathing and breathing and breathing. Is it possible that when he got to the last line of that song, he took another breath and said, he has done it. It is finished. And that's when he breathed his last. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. Maybe. And if you've got your Bible there, you'll know that the very next psalm after Psalm 22 is Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul and so on and so on. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. If Jesus was singing Psalm 22 with his last breath calling out for he has done it, perhaps his first thought in the, in, as he stood in death, whatever that looks like, whatever that looks like, the intermediate state or whether he's, wherever that is, his very next thought may well have been, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. I wonder. That's a few notes about the idea of separation and substitute. Yes, Jesus absolutely takes on us the sins of all the world. I'm careful not to use the Bible to list all the sins of the world. He absolutely does take all of our sins so that we can be in relationship with his Father. But in crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not crying out in fear or terror or dismay or pain or loss of faith. He's not saying God is far from him. He's crying out in faith. He's crying out this great song. It is done. The next point in Mark's gospel is he just adds in. He's had the description there of Jesus' last words, his last breath. And then he just says, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. We're here looking at Jesus on the cross, and suddenly we cut away to something happening in the city, miles away. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Why does he put that in there? It's a picture of reconciliation, a picture of peace, a picture of warring factions being brought back together. The Jewish temple in this day is a picture of, of Herod's temple, an illustration of what we think it would have looked like. Uh, that big whole area there is called the Court of the Gentiles. Remember, we spoke about that with, the, with Jesus clearing the temple. That would have been where the merchants would have been. This is what's called the Temple Mount. And if you go to Jerusalem today, you can see this big flat area uh, on top, the Temple Mount. There's now a, a, a mosque in the middle, the various things there, but that flat surface is what was built uh, with these huge retaining walls, the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall, where the Jews go to, to worship these days um, or to pray. 
is a is a is a, a wall to retain this this big flat area on the top of the city, and that part is still there. Everything else is knocked down, as Jesus uh, predicted in Mark thirteen. But the series of of walls and rooms you can go closer and closer in and um, would have been fabulous to look at. This is another picture then of the various little sections as you go closer and closer in. Um, so the outside is the court of the Gentiles and the court of the women and the court of the men and then the area where the priests can go to the holy place. And then there's the holy of holies between number one and number three there. Holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant would have been kept, where the very presence of God was. Holy place where the priests come and offer their sacrifices and do their things. And between the two was this curtain, this curtain, this veil, a couple of stories high, good thick um, material. And the idea was that the high priest would only go into the Holy of Holies once a year to offer certain sacrifices on the Day of Atonement. And tradition tells us they used to tie a rope around the high priest in case he did the wrong thing in there or touched the wrong thing in there and was killed. It was a very special place. The very presence of God is behind that curtain, just over there. Just over there is the very presence of God. There is a barrier between us and God. God can't deal with us and we can't deal with him. There's this barrier there. But Mark tells us, and the other gospel writers echo this idea, that on that day, just at that moment, as Jesus breathed his last, the temp, the curtain was torn in two. The other gospels tell us from top to bottom, torn in two from top to bottom. And suddenly the priests going about their business, offering their sacrifices and saying their prayers and doing the things. Suddenly they're all looking into the Holy of Holies. There's nothing between them and the very presence of God anymore. Mark has been telling us throughout uh, his story of this, this last week of Jesus' life as Jesus has come and cleared the temple and told his stories in chapter 13 of the destruction of the temple and all those things. The temple is, is done. It's finished. It's through. We don't need it anymore because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. There's reconciliation. There's peace between God and man for the first time because Jesus has paid the price for our sin. He's represented us to God and he's represented God to us. And so reconciliation is a picture of two warring factions who make peace, who restore things to the way things once were. And so we can have reconciliation with God. We can go back to having that relationship with him that Adam and Eve first had in the Garden of Eden, of walking with God and talking with God one to one, fellowship with him, fellowship with one another, peace between heaven and earth. That's what Jesus achieved on the cross. Friends, there's so much in Good Friday. There's so much in this story of, of Jesus. And I encourage you to read through all of chapter 15. Picture the scene and put yourself in the scene. Jesus dies on the cross for you and for me. For generations as yet unborn and for generations past. His death is sufficient for the sins of the whole world. He takes our place on the cross. He dies in our place so that you and I can have peace with God. But did it work? Was there enough? We'll talk about that on Easter Sunday. There's a beautiful hymn, a beautiful song. Beautiful song to finish with this morning. 
There is a green hill far away without a city wall, where the dear Lord was crucified, who died to save us all. We may not know, we cannot tell what pains he had to bear, but we believe it was for us. He hung and suffered there. He died that we might be forgiven. He died to make us good, that we might go at last to heaven, saved by his precious blood. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. Oh, dearly, dearly has he loved, and we must love him too, and trust in his redeeming blood, and try his works to do. Let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you this morning that you are a God of great love, of great compassion, of great mercy. And even when we had walked away from you and done so many things and spit in your face and treated you so badly, you sent your son to show us what you were really like. And even after we walked away from him and spat in his face and treated him so badly, and after we hung him on a cross and killed him, Father God, you loved us so much that you sent your Son, and whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Father God, we are amazed. I am amazed at your grace to us. I am amazed at your love for us. Father God, I pray that if there's anyone listening to this today who does not know you in a real and personal way, speak to them. Speak to them today. Draw them to a place of repentance and faith. Help them to put all their trust in Jesus Christ and what he has done for us because it is finished. Father, I thank you that we are now at peace because you have brought an end to the war between us and you. Help us, Heavenly Father. Help us to repent, to turn, to trust, to live at peace with you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you have done for us. Thank you for dying in my place on that cross. I pray all this in your precious and powerful name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.